Welcome or welcome back to Tea and Tangents with Tara. And on this week's episode, we have Emily. Emily and I met through work and um, now she's obsessed with me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just obsessed with Tara's dogs. (laughs) She actually only comes over to see them and she doesn't even say hi to me when she comes over. She just goes to say hi to my dogs. So that's fun. So, Emily and I are both women in STEM, and with being a woman in STEM, a lot of complications, experiences, and obstacles, yeah, come in the way of our opportunities because we have to kind of forge a path for ourselves, and while there are a lot of people who have done so already, Emily calls her mom, (laughs) Marie Curie. Uh, yes, because she likes to radiate herself for fun. Yeah, which is super fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you could take um, a woman in your life that you know and take a quality from her, steal a quality from her, who would it be and why? Oh. Um, my grandmother. She's just the ma- like matriarch of my family. And I just think she has a lot of patience and a lot of wisdom. Um, and I just think she's the ideal person, and I just want to be her. <laughs> That's her. very iconic. Has your grandmother influenced you to go into your field at all? Has she encouraged you? Of course. Um, so my grandmother um, is a breast cancer survivor, and my mom um, takes mammograms. That's, like, her job as an x-ray tech, which is why I call her Marie Curie. But, um... So I think when I first was interested in environmental science and environmental health, that was my first introduction to the connection between environment and health, um, thinking about cancer survivors, especially my grandmother. That's very iconic of you. And it's also really nice to hear you um, have the ability to connect your work to personal life and to your own experiences. Because when you can do that, you, it makes life a lot more meaningful. And I think it makes work a bit easier when you're passionate about it. So Emily is an environmental science fanatic, as am I. And a lot of our work centers around it. But Emily is going to pursue her master's in public health in environmental related things. Because as you know, like the environment is a part of our health and we are a part of our environment. Um, So Emily has done a lot of research in her years of college, and she's also been very involved in the STEM community. How did you get started with research? Um, Well, I think I was always interested in, like, the hands-on aspect of science. Um, And I think it's kind of hard when you're starting out as an undergrad or just, like, being a first year because you don't have that opportunity, especially if you go to, like, a small liberal arts college like I did. Um, So you kind of have to, like, kind of force professors to take you under their wing and help you out. And that's kind of where I got started. I found like a really good professor that I could look up to. um, And she kind of guided me and I'm still in the process of developing like my senior thesis um, about microplastics. Mm-hmm. Like I also had a similar experience when um, entering into my university because research isn't something that you can just sign up for it's not something that you can just be like hey like I'm interested take me Mm -hmm. let me do it like you have to want to do it and and seek it and research costs a lot of money yeah (laughs) yeah if your university doesn't have the funding they're not going to be interested in um 
you know, getting like machinery, especially with science, you need so many different like types of equipment to help you just like find something like basic, basic information. Yeah. And when I, I do a lot of like social based research, like it's based on social data. Um, but when I was starting out with research, you don't realize how much funding plays a part until like you're applying to positions because they'll be like, oh, like we can't accept the budget assistant because we don't have the funds for it. Or we can't take on this project because the school doesn't want to provide a scholarship for it. Yeah. And I wish someone told me um, when I was first getting started, um, you know, what I would need to really have on my resume or my CV, you know, to get into grad school. Um, I think a lot of like the really big ones aren't really mentioned enough. And I think like coding is one that a lot of kids don't know how to do. Um, but it's even being started as young as like high school teaching kids how to code. And I didn't even know how to code until up until recently where I had to take a class, but it wasn't a required course. And a lot of times if you're going for a job straight out of getting a, a BA or a BS, they're going to want you to have that experience. Yeah. Do you think that there's a reason why it's not promoted as much? Do you think it's kind of a form of elitism to keep those resources that might take a lot of funding or might take a lot of knowledge um, away from like the general group of kids applying yeah well I mean I think first things first if you have a small major like environmental sciences as opposed to like the the bigger biology major Mm -hmm. um you're only going to have a couple of kids who even need to take that class or even want to take that class because it's offered as most likely an elective right so why would they waste paying one professor to teach a class to like three kids yeah which is what happened my coding class last semester was like four students but I think it was essential to a lot of the projects that I want to do. Um, and I think it's also a good way of um, engaging the community because um, a lot of the times with science, just basic people don't know how to record data. And I think when you take things like, um, especially like heavy metals and water, and you're offering that to communities and having them be able to measure their own amount so they can, you know, make sure what they're being exposed to is safe in their own home or like lead paint, um, you have to teach them, you know, just the general public on, like, what to do. So I think public data sets, public um, databases are super important. So if you don't know how to code, you're able to manipulate that data. And I think that's really important for people to be able to do. I think it's really important for students to realize that things like coding can have applications like research. Because, I mean, coding is important for a lot of things. It's not just computer science. Which is a yeah. big misconception. And it's, it's honestly, it's not as scary as it sounds. It looks scary to me. I, so I accidentally took the coding class. I did not mean to. <laughs> How do you accidentally take a class? Um, because it was like data analysis. So I thought like we were just going to graph. Mm-hmm. On Excel, mm-hmm. which I don't know how to use. So I was like, this is a good idea. It was not. But I ended up doing a really cool project, and I definitely, like, the other day I was, like, coding just for fun, and now I code for my job. But it's important just not for, you know, like, super sciencey people, but for social scientists, too. Anytime you have big data sets, you need to know how to manipulate that Which data. is also important for business, because a business... Um, Businesses and corporations need to understand their inputs and outputs, and they need to know how to look at it on a bigger scale. Like, apologies, I don't understand business. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> My goal is to, especially post-grad, because, I mean, the world is 
the world we live in is capitalism. Like, everything is a business, even healthcare, Mm -hmm. even environmental science. I don't like stocks. And that's okay. I support you. Tell me why every man I have ever met thinks that they're a stock trader. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, that's why we need more scientists. Unpopular opinion. I know a lot of people say that investing in the stock market isn't like trading. Uh, isn't like, pardon me, gambling, but I feel like it is um, a gamble. You are totally gambling. Like, what? Like, I. <laughs> like, why would you risk. There's like mutual funds and um index funds, which I understand investing into because it's like a long term thing. You're putting a little bit of money into each. Um, like you're diversifying your portfolio, whatever. You're not putting all your eggs in one basket. The people at Bitcoin putting like millions of dollars into Bitcoin and then it crashes. Like that's crazy to me. No, I just, you know, men truly think that they know everything. Especially with cryptocurrency. It, like, yeah. In fact, crypto is my trigger word. So. <laughs> um, additionally, um, I just like, you just have an E-Trade account. You don't work on Wall Street. <laughs> PSA to all men. <laughs> Thank you for that, Emily. Um, with that, I think... No, I'm just kidding. But I think that's the main message of this <laughs> podcast episode. Um, have you ever tried trading stocks? Um, fun fact. This is um, my own personal hell. Um, I inherited um, an insane amount of stocks when my father passed away, and I don't know what to do with them. Okay, have you been managing the portfolio or have you just been letting um, it be? Like all college-age men, I have an E-Trade account. Per? Damn straight. I am a finance bro. Watch out, Wall Street. Take notes, men. <laughs> um, but that's another thing that we can learn how to manage in the new year. I don't know, coding seems very scary to me. All I did was, like, code.org in middle school, and that's it. And I learned how to, like, you don't know what that is? It's, like, when you, like, drag, like, puzzle pieces or whatever and, like, do functions. It basically teaches you what inputs and outputs are, and that's it. I did not mean to crack my knuckle. <laughs> Durian. No, I hate that noise. I just gagged. I can't do it. ASMR. ASMR. Um, no, I, I don't know. I code on R. Um... Scary people use Python. That's like computer science coding. Oh my gosh, my I have a friend who uses Python, and that that's in JavaScript. That also looks scary to me. I don't JavaScript, know I think, is like an older version, but don't quote me on that. R is for so each like kind of coding like whatever. I guess like platform like R like R is like more for like environmental science mm-hmm. or scientists. I guess social science too. So, like, Python is more for, like, math and computer science. So, like, you don't have to go straight into the scariness of, like, those programs when you can really just, like, use R. And, like, my training in R is, like, based on, like, what I would encounter as an environmental scientist. I'm not going to know how to do things that are, like, above my, like, degree level mm-hmm. or anything like that. But you know what you have to know. Yes, and plus a lot of coding you can just Google. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a lot of people just... Google things, especially um, like yeah. professionals. You don't realize how often a nurse will just go, or any health professional will Google and double check what they're thinking. Yeah, today at work I had to Google on um, how to change a Y access name on R. So sometimes, you know, Google is a, a helpful tool. 
Yeah, which I don't understand why in the education system it's not encouraged to research what you're doing and to Google things. Yes, I don't think that, like, you need to be, like, I have a big issue with tests because I don't think that, um, like, you need to memorize everything. Like, that, that doesn't make sense, especially in the sciences. It's, like, not applicable. Mm-hmm. You can't, like, know every single, like, chem, like, function or whatever. You need to know, like, okay, if this, you know, <clears throat> species of acid interacts with, like, this species of base, like, what will happen? Like, you know, like, you should know things like that. Like, you should have, like, problem-solving skills. I think that's probably why a lot of people don't do well in organic chem. Oh my Because that's a lot of like kind of looking at a problem and figuring it out. Like I, I really don't think for uh, memorizing everything in orgo can help you. Um, I, I think you really need to know how to like do it. It's it's a very skill based course, which is why I struggled in it so much <laughs> because you can't just memorize everything and then expect to know how to do it. Like you have to actually. It's like math. But there's no math in orgo. Mm-hmm. It's like math, though. Yeah. Yeah, it's essentially, like, um, if you've ever done, like, when you do proofs in geometry in high school, any, any to people... To prove it, how, how is this triangle? <laughs> yeah. Tell how, me why this is a triangle. Like, that was the stupidest thing ever, but... Yeah, so it's, it's kind of like that. The worst that happens in organic chem or, like, any other, like, course is, like, okay, this plus this equals this, and it's, like, how did it get there? Yeah, I don't like that. Those are those are really tough. Um, definitely not my favorite. <laughs> yeah, no. So with research and, you know, even with finding a job, where did you start? Did you start in high school? Did you start in the beginning of college? Um, well, like, I always worked, but I never, like, got a job in my field until fairly recently. I think it's kind of impossible for, um, you know, first year and second year students in, like, undergrad to be able to work unless you go to a larger campus, which, like, I didn't. I think if you go to a large, like, public university and you have a lot of, like, graduate students, they're going to, you know, have undergrads work with them. So, like, I wasn't able to do any of that, but I, I think that's unfortunate. I wish I did. Yeah. I started research in high school, but it, it was mainly because there was a research program at my high school. So, again, that was another thing that I was privileged enough to have access to and know what, about. Like AP testing? No, it was, like, I was, I was, I was too old for that. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Because it was, like, only offered when I was about to graduate. I am an AP capstone graduate. She's, she also has the steel of biliteracy. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> yeah, in my school, like, they introduced it later in my high school so, years. Yeah, I guess, actually, that's a good point, though, Tara, because I guess my first, like, major research project was, like, physically doing research was I looked at evidence in greenwashing and oil <laughs> and gas companies um, commercials as, as a junior in high school. That's amazing. But it's also a resource that you had. Yeah, no, no, and that's true. And I think my high school was very proud that they offered it. Mm-hmm. Um... But, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, like, a great program if it's done right. I think I have a lot of ups and downs with, like, the way it was run at my school. I didn't really like it. Um, but I think, like, learning how to use databases and learning how to, you know, just find things online, like, whether it's using, like, Google Scholar or, like, um, the things that are – because sometimes you are looking at databases and you have to pay for the articles, which is another big problem in science, which is why you should use Skyhub. For everything. This is a sponsored message. <laughs> Use Skyhub. It is a Russian website. 
which gives you all like these, you know, academic journals and you don't need to pay for them. You can download them. I do it every day at work. I am not paying $13 to read a PDF. These from research articles don't go to the researchers. No, they don't no. go to no, the institution. No scientist makes money off anything that they write. It's not no, true. No, they just, it goes to the publisher. And publishing companies make bank because some people won't go the extra route to see how they can get the article for free and they will pay $75 out of necessity. And again, that brings us back to the sheer influence of funding in research. Yes, a science should be free and available to everybody. It should, and it's not. And that's why so many people are misinformed on basic things. And misinformation is profitable mm-hmm. for, you know, one, big publishing companies and two, big research companies. Because when people are misinformed, you can sell them things more easily. Yes, if you don't read and find out and make you know, um, I guess, you know, make, what is that word? The effort? Well, no, make the effort, but if you don't, you know, create your own ideas, Mm -hmm. um, like, don't let anyone influence you. Like, do your own research, okay? And if you ever hear something and you're like, that's definitely not right, you know, tell them to cite their sources. And if it's Fox News, do not listen to them. (laughs) And Fox News is different than Fox Sports. Fun fact. (laughs) No, if you need to be able to, you know, and a lot of, like, News 12 is not offering you, like, up-to-date science. If you really need science, go to, like, nature.com. It's it's not that hard to find something that's right. Just, like, Google it. You know, in elementary school, they teach you to go to, you know, websites that end in dot dot .org, org dot dot .edu. Take note. A, a lot of influence now is on TikTok, right? TikTok is a huge yeah. source so for information. I think. I remember being in high school and, like, older kids, like, if I had, like, a teacher who was, like, 27 or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, like, millennials. I think millennials find a lot of their news on Twitter. And I think us, Tara and I, who are Gen Z, I think we find out a lot of our news on um, TikTok. And, like, for me personally, because it's, like, a For You page, and I think, obviously, your phone knows you best, right? So, I think, like, I don't, I rarely will get, like, misinformation because typically, like, that misinformation isn't geared towards someone of my audience, you know right. what I mean? I think it's, personally, I think it's geared toward, like, older people. Um, So, like, if I find something like that, I'm like, this is not, half but, of the time it's paid, uh, like, a paid advertisement, too, so. But also, because, one, because it's paid, you can question the influence, yes. right? You question, what is their intention behind paying this to be sponsored and to be on your For You page, and... Content is tailored to you to keep you scrolling, right? You're not going to want to keep scrolling on TikTok if your content is boring or if it's not, you know, enticing. If you have a For You page, which everyone has, and I love my For You page, I would never get a new TikTok account because I feel like it's so tailored to me. It's addicting. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you got, like, a new TikTok account, for example, you start fresh, it's boring because your phone doesn't know you yet. So when your phone knows you, it's also able to take advantage of you. Like, it's able to sell you products and show you this skincare or this well, thing. I'm a victim of that because mm-hmm. if, like, one of, I guess, like, a TikTok influencer, like, if I see something they're using, I'm like, oh, I should, I should get that. But half the time it's, like, things I like because if it's, like, a makeup or skincare person and that's yeah. how they profit off TikTok, chances are, like, I'm going to like what they're using because I share, like, the same... Interests. Yeah. I, I'm a skincare girl. Yeah, which works out. Mm-hmm. But it's also something that a lot of people aren't aware of because they'll 
see something and subconsciously think about it like oh like hmm, like I'm thinking about let's say moisturizer like I really want moisturizer because they saw it on TikTok and now it's in their brain and then they go back on TikTok and they see like who's the who's the newest influencer like Alex Earl like promoting yes. a new moisturizer and they're like okay well I'm gonna buy that one and the problem with that is not that they're really selling products like that's not really the problem but the problem comes when it comes to real news and real science because when people believe things so easily from TikTok and I find myself doing it too like sometimes like yeah I saw this on TikTok I watched this on TikTok um, my personal favorite is um when monkeypox was like really like a big thing not that it isn't anymore like obviously but that first initial like craze that happens anytime there's a mm-hmm. new like infectious disease on the market people were like oh like if you go to the doctor and you have evidence of eczema they're gonna ask you to like show your like past records indicating that you have like eczema and that's not monkeypox and I was like there is no way you're gonna go to the doctor and they're gonna be like prove to me that you don't have monkeypox because no. they're the ones who are supposed to know if it's monkeypox and also I, I think monkeypox was really blown out of proportion I mean I I mean it was in our area like I'm not saying it, it was like in some well, foreign New country just loves to be a hub for any infectious disease <laughs> yes it does <laughs> because there's so many people and people are constantly in and out of New York City yeah it's not a close especially travelers so if they're coming from mm-hmm. another country where more diseases are prevalent um because you know we should be grateful that we live in the U.S. and we have like clean water mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people don't have that. It's just like with the Ebola outbreak, and then the, the like two reported cases. Like one was in like Texas, and then I think yeah. there was another one. Um, like I think there's such big wake up calls for us, where like, and that's the reason why there's so much about like craziness and like, yeah, you know, people just like, um, like, even like pre COVID, like them locking themselves inside and like being all nervous. It's because like people in other countries, they're like this is they experience this every day. Like there's always. Yeah that threat and not as severe as like Ebola but like malaria is constant yeah but really COVID was our first in our generation in our time living our first time experiencing a big risk for disease and risk for disease outbreak like I remember the first time that I went to a restaurant out of quarantine right like out of like COVID quarantine which was like maybe it was when I was doing college tours, so it was, like, still pretty late, like, after COVID started, and I literally had a panic attack in the restaurant. I was in Denny's, and I was, I was like, I can't do this. I was like, oh I'm going to be infected. I haven't been to Denny's in years. You know one goes to Denny's. You just end up there. Yeah. I think the Denny's by me closed. Like, I think it was open for maybe, like, a year. <laughs> Denny's um, is such a weird place. I think that place had rats. Ew. Carriers for infectious disease. Um, I mean, personally, like, I honestly, I wasn't that scared because I, I worked in a restaurant, um, during the pandemic, um, but, like, it was also my senior year of high school, um, not that I was upset about, like, not having to go to school, but I think it was more, like, for me, it was more of a personal thing because my mom worked in the medical field and that would stress me out, you know, about her getting sick or, you know, um, not, I wasn't even worried about, like, myself getting sick because it wasn't us, you know, people like Tara and my age who were really getting it bad. Like, I was more worried about my mom and my grandparents, and um, my sister was little at that time, too. Um, and then, now my mom just had COVID again in December, mm-hmm. and she, like... It ran through your house. Well, it did run through my house, but I did not get it. Um, but... 
like now she's like, oh, it's no big deal. Like I'm just gonna test myself and see. Mm-hmm. But if which you know, and like that way it becomes like RSV. But anytime you have a disease. It's really, like, the older people, like, the elderly you need to look out for, and then, like, the little kids. Because they're most at risk for mm-hmm. um, immune system deficiencies. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what was so scary about it. But that also happens every year with, like, the flu. So. Yeah. Which I think is, the flu and RSV and COVID are, like, really go like, bad Right now, point. really bad. Like, yeah. it's Especially with the kids. Like, yep. every kid has the flu. Right every now. kid has flu A. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, and the flu is, like, absolutely awful. I mm-hmm. think it's worse than COVID, honestly. Um, I think even the flu shot is atrocious. Every time I get it, I get sick for, like, a day. Um, Which is why, like, also, when I was a kid, my mom would never let us get the flu shot because she was convinced that the flu was going to mutate and we were going to get it anyway. Was your mom anti-vax as a healthcare she, worker? She's not anti-vax. She is anti-flu-vax. <laughs> okay, she doesn't get it because she's like, this is useless. It, it you know, there's a new variant every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess in a way she was right. But, like, please get vaccinated. Yes, please. It's very simple. They, like, every time you go into CVS, they're like, you want a flu shot? It, and it's accessible. It's not – we're fortunate enough to live in a place where it is accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, as a woman in STEM in your field, have you ever encountered an obstacle with another person telling you you can't do something or you're not qualified enough to do something? Um, maybe not, like, not being allowed to do things uh, or not being qualified. I would say it just takes a long time to earn the respect of, like, mm-hmm. higher-ups. And especially in the field of science, but I think in any field, you have, like, older people who just, like, will not retire and I think anytime they see, like, new people coming in, I think they feel threatened by them. Um, so I think that's a big deal. But I feel like in college, especially, like, where I am right now as, like, a senior in college, I just feel like there's so much competition right now. And I just, like, um, I haven't had been having, like, a good experience in a couple of my classes because it just, like, doesn't feel like a welcoming, like, environment. And I just feel like the boys in my STEM classes are not the nicest and it just ruins the experience for everyone. Yeah. Because a lot of, I think it happens often in the classroom where uh, you get spoken over or someone yeah. tries to correct you because they, you know, preemptively yeah, assume it's, they're It's definitely, wrong. so they're microaggressions, right? Yeah. So it's definitely like being spoken over or being like, do this, mm-hmm. you know? And it's very much like, okay, why is that acceptable for them to act like that? But Mm -hmm. if I acted like that, it would be a problem. Right. And I think it's because the world just hates strong, confident. You can even say strong, confident people. Or strong, but most importantly, they hate strong, confident women. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of men are so threatened by smart women. Um, And I think that's really what prohibits women from moving forward in their field. Yeah. And I think it also prohibits women from entering the field in the first place and nevertheless moving forward because people feel intimidated to go into male-dominated fields and to express themselves and share what they're thinking and Mm -hmm. learn and be a beginner. It's so frustrating because at this point, I mean, it's 2023, 
we have had so many women who were pioneers in science. It's, you, no one should bat an eye anymore about women being in STEM. Mm-hmm. But it just seems like no matter how how many women flood these STEM fields, that there's always, you know, one man who needs to make you question that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I've been fortunate to have, like, a really good boss in my first STEM um, job and work with a lot of women in my office. But... I have a bad experience over the summer with, like, a male co-worker. It's just men who think that, like, you know, that, like, you shouldn't be there, that they know more. And that's just unacceptable. Yeah. And it's sad that men my own age are still acting like that. Yeah. When they honestly should know better. And it's just, it comes down to, like, basic, like, how you people should treat one another, regardless of gender. Yes. I, I completely agree, and I see you, and I hear how that can be frustrating to anyone in your position. I mean, for me, I remember witnessing it as, so I work um, in a healthcare place and one time, one night, a patient came in and he was like demanding a COVID test, right? And we were like, we're about to close. We can't provide this right now. Like we're closing in one minute, right? The machines are down. And he's like, no, like I know you're open longer. Like I know that like the site doesn't close right now. And then our female doctor came out to speak to this man and she was like, I'm so sorry. Like you can come back at this time. I can refer you to a place that's still open. And he like went off. He, we, we have no security call. We're an office full of women. And he's like, well, you know what? Like, this is why young people shouldn't be doctors and all you young doctors don't care about people and young women like shouldn't be in this type of position because you're just not like fit for the role and he's basically going off on yeah. this very qualified very experienced doctor for being young and for being a woman and I think at least for me I've been overlooked more in my life because I'm young than because I'm a woman yeah but I, I completely agree with that also I think but everyone which is so question because everyone needs to start somewhere yeah like you can't not want 20-somethings to, you know, have an entry-level position at a job, like, because one day they're going to be the senior, you know, executives in charge. Like, everyone needs to start somewhere, and we need to provide young people with those positions. Yeah, and I think it's also, like, I look young, too, so it's also when I walk into a room, like, it's, there's, like, a bit of skepticism about, do I belong there? Not for me, but from other people, like, who are you? Mm -hmm. So I think establishing yourself and myself in our fields starts with establishing ourselves in the room and being like, yep, like I can talk. Don't talk over me. I think it's having confidence. I think sometimes also harms us as women as well, though, because you don't want to come off. I'm always worried about being overly confident. Mm -hmm. And I know it's only because I'm worried about like what everyone's going to think about me. And that's, but that's like a societal thing. I think that's learned over time that like, you know, you don't want to come off like being too confident, especially um you know with men <clears throat> but I think that's really what like your best bet is is just be confident yeah and have you know high self-esteem and like you you do belong there you have a degree and you know you have training that prepared you to enter this field and like there's no reason why you shouldn't be there and everyone else should be this reminds me of the quote-unquote syndrome, imposter syndrome, that a lot of women and people of color struggle with in the workplace Mm -hmm. because they don't – imposter syndrome is when you feel like you're not qualified for a position that you're clearly qualified to be in because you wouldn't be there if you weren't. 
Um, so I feel like that's something going forward that a lot of young people will struggle with going into STEM. I think it's getting better now. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's getting better with, you know, women being welcomed into spaces. But there's still, again, microaggressions. And there's still things that men aren't and people aren't held accountable for when it comes to welcoming women in the workplace. Thank you, Emily, for coming on today's podcast. Thank you for having me. Of course. And to my listeners, thank you so much for listening. Um, I have a Twitter. I'll put it in the description. So feel free to share your thoughts on women in STEM. And, and we'll see you on the next one. Mm-hmm.